Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is sponsored by language app Babbel. He had the machine there and the programmer was just sitting there for the first question on the screen saying, if you press this button, you know, do you want to die? So he goes, press. The third question is, if you press this button, you will die in 15 seconds. That was the last statement. Oh, my God. Without any hesitation, he presses the button and he pushes the machine away, just pushes it out to his side and he turns and holds his wife. And I'm on the other side of the room watching this. Today, I talked to Dr. Death. Also known by his real name, Philip Nitschke, he was the first person to assist a suicide in Australia when it was temporarily legal. Philip has been living in Holland and is now in France. He's the founder of Exit International, an organization that helps people who want to opt out of life to do so through a mix of advice about the right drugs and where to get them. He's also built machines that have helped people to kill themselves. When I spoke to Philip a few days ago, it was a fine spring day, as it is today, and you'll even hear some birdsong in the background of my audio at times. A bit of a contrast to the rather weighty and morose topic. I would just add that this is not a how-to episode, but rather a portrait of an eccentric and controversial man known as Dr. Death, and a look at the morality and legality of a taboo topic. There is no mention of specifics that would enable anybody to kill themselves and I would strongly encourage anyone feeling suicidal not to listen to this episode. Just skip it, play it on mute so I still get paid by adverts. I'm kidding of course. But get in touch with the Samaritans organisation who will do everything they can to help you or an equivalent in the country you're in. For those of you that are continuing with the episode, there are two stories in particular that Philip tells. One about the time his machine didn't work properly because he hadn't done his homework. It's pretty horrific. And another about the first man he was able to assist with suicide after having lunch together at the man's home. I've touched on some controversial topics over the past 50 episodes, but none more polemic and heartbreaking than this one, as we effectively discuss whether humans should have the right to kill themselves. Philip has invented a new machine called the Sarco, which is essentially a big space-age-looking tomb that you step inside and it kills you through liquid nitrogen and low oxygen levels, said by Exit International to encourage an intoxicating death. Just ask scuba divers, it writes. Its other mottos online include, go with style, and where art meets its end. 
The cost of it depends on your local 3D printer outlets, while a membership to Exit costs $100 a year. Right now, for those wanting to commit suicide, Dignitas in Switzerland typically sets you back over $10,000. I came across Dr. Death and Exit International through the book Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat by journalist and futurist Jenny Kleeman, who, as it happens, is on this podcast next week. Thank you so much to Jenny for the recommendation, and all of you, make sure to get her book in advance of next week's episode. It's phenomenal. That's Sex, Robots and Vegan Meats. It's been making a huge impression around the world. I ask a few more questions in the 15-minute bonus content for patrons, which you can get on the Patreon app or patreon.com slash andrewgold. Also, some of you might remember I was supposed to have a survivor from the Andes plane crash who had to eat his friend's dead bodies on the show today. His episode had to be put back a couple of weeks, but should still air. But for now, here's Philip. Tell me a little bit about what Exit do. Well, Exit's an organisation I started... uh quite a while ago we had a brief mm. law in, in australia which allowed a doctor to give a lethal injection mm. to a terminally ill patient it only lasted for about eight months before it was overturned by the federal government of australia i used it four times and it was the only time it was used at law i was a strong supporter of it but when it was overturned people didn't stop coming along looking for some advice and guidance and so i set up exit to try and effectively offer some sort of support for people and that's how it started, very much uh, as a way of trying to fill in the gap that was left when what had been the world's first legislation. It was interesting. It was actually the world's first law that allowed a lethal injection to be provided to a mm. to a consenting patient. Uh, but anyway, uh, I uh, set the organisation up that way. It's changed a lot since then because in the early days I used to run around talking to people in my sort of medical-type role and, see if I could kind of work out some way that they could get what they wanted, either by clever manipulation of whatever drugs they were getting or giving bits of advice here and there about what might be might be possible. But I used to only engage with people if I thought they were sick enough uh, to qualify. Physically or mentally? Could they be depressed? Yes. Well, I mean, there was always a question about you know, the mental issue. And so one always was making a decision there. But physically, because under the law, which we had briefly, the world's first law, but now it's mirrored all over the place, you basically, these are medical laws, you've got to be sick enough to qualify and you've got to be of sound mind. So there's a mental issue, sound mind, but you've got to be sick enough for usually a panel of doctors to decide that you're suffering at such a level that you deserve their engagement. Mm. Now, I was starting off to do that too, uh, and I was challenged because one particular person asked me to see her. Well, she actually came to me and said, look, I'm going to die in four years' time, uh, and uh, in four years' time, uh, I'd like some information about drugs, please. And I said, oh, what are you going to, what are you dying in four years' time? Must have a very surprisingly accurate trajectory. I was a bit taken aback, and she said, oh, well, I'm not sick, but in four years' time, I'll be 80. That's the reason for dying. She was a retired oh. academic in Australia. Um I thought she was joking. People say all sorts of things. I didn't take that much notice of it. But as I used to see her every time I went over to that particular city in Perth in Western Australia, I'd run a meeting and she'd be there. And it was three years and two years. And then it was one year. And she said, hurry up and answer my questions. And I said, but uh, Lisette was her name. She was French. And I, I said, but Lisette, you're not sick. 
go on a world cruise. I said, write a book. And she said, mind your own business. Got nothing to do with you, doctor. She said, sort of spat it at me. She said, I don't, she said, I don't, I don't, all I want from you is technical information about drugs. She said, I don't want a sermon. If you're going to give it, if I've got to put up with a sermon from you, forget it. She says, she said, the trouble with you is you run around the countryside judging people and assessing whether or not you'll dole out bits of precious information. You're the best example of insufferable, arrogant medical paternalism, which I was totally crippled by the allegation, but it was quite true, of course, because that's what I was doing. I was seeing whether a person was sick enough to warrant my engagement. And if they weren't sick enough, I'd say, oh, we'll come back when you're sicker. But she was saying, look, you're not a judge. Stop doing it. You're just a holder of technical expertise and information because of the nature of your background. I didn't have, I don't have that background. I've got a different background. You've got information and I want it. It could have been the other way around. She said, you could have been sitting here asking me. It's just that you're just fortunate because of your training. Anyway, the point was she's quite completely correct. I was mortified and probably collapsed and gave her all the information she needed. And when she was 80, she died. And it, it attracted a lot of attention in Australia because, uh, of course, all of our opponents said, yes, you know, first we had this nasty, dangerous piece of law which allowed terminally ill people to get help to die. And now look what's happening. Well, people are being helped to die. This is an example of the dreaded slippery slope. Hmm. But what it really was, to my mind, was it, it really did tease out some of the important underlying philosophical issues here. Is this just to be a privilege for the very sick? Or is there something more fundamental about this? And that is, do you or should you have, as a, as a rational adult, the right to determine uh, and have access to the best means for peaceful death. And that's where exits now, it's been, receives quite a lot of criticisms uh, from both sides, really, from people who don't want any laws and also criticism from people that are working quite hard to bring legislative changes in many countries around the world because they say the trouble with your do-it-yourself approach is that it scares the politicians and it makes it harder for laws to change. So I Exit's been, been criticised quite a lot. If you could build up the argument of the other side, the people who, who don't want those people to have access to, as you say, a peaceful death, how would you put it in their words? Uh, the other, well, by the people who are opposed to even the, even the most restrictive of the legislative models, that is, you're just about dead, you're going to die within a very short space of time, you're completely of sound mind and you should be able to get help from someone, a doctor, usually a panel of doctors to die. That's the most conservative legislation, and there are people that oppose that. And by and large, the people that oppose that, it used to be, it used to be from two factions. Uh, the medical profession wasn't keen. When, when I was involved in the passing, passing of that first piece of law, my opposition was coming from the medical profession. That's my new profession because I did medicine kind of late in life. Uh, they opposed it strongly, but the strongest opposition that led to the political challenge and the overturning of the law in Australia was from the church. And it was oh. from various factions within the church, but they were predominantly religious arguments, which would I, you know, I wouldn't pretend to do them justice, but they would say something along the lines that uh, your life's not your own. Um, uh, your, uh, your life belongs to God. God is the only entity able to make a decision about when that life should be divested. And you coming along and making... Uh, making that decision mm. that is uh, you're usurping the role taken by the Lord. Now, that's an argument which I can't argue with. I mean, no one can argue. If that's what you believe, that's what you believe. I don't believe that. And so my response to that was, well, you can have those beliefs, but don't, don't, uh, I don't want you to start pushing those views down my throat. They're not my yeah. beliefs. I believe I should be able to divest myself of my life. So that's that side. The medical profession, 
they opposed it too. Uh, and they've more or less now come around and so that the laws that are coming in now around the world are pretty much supported by certainly mm. what you might describe as progressive elements within the medical profession. But the thing is, they, what they support is a law that they control. In other words, the medical profession controls the law. You go off and ask permission. If the doctors think you're sick enough, then you qualify, then you get help to die. But you don't, as I'll keep saying, you don't have control. The decision is by the medical profession. That's medicalised laws. Yeah. Uh, which they quite ha- doctors are quite happy with generally. Whereas I, I believe you're saying that you think somebody should be, even if they're in you know good health, yes. they should be able to come to you and say, I want to opt out. And I suppose the argument against that would be, uh, well, what if someone's going through a rough patch uh, and that they need time to sort of get start to feel better again? I mean, I'm, I say there's two criteria that are a, uh, not to ones that are absolute. That is, you have to be an adult. You can't, we're not talking about children here. You must know about the permanence of death, but you've also got to be of sound mind. Now, that's a pretty nebulous quality, this idea of mental capacity as it's often touted around. Mental capacity is an interesting entity. Now, I'm saying you've definitely got to have mental capacity. Now, you just said, what if you're having a bad day? Well, I guess if you're having a bad day, you may have slipped out of a situation where you've got mental capacity. But if you're making sound decisions, and what I'm getting at here is I don't think we should impose arbitrarily high prerequisites here for example if you go up and commit a crime because you're having a bad day the law isn't going to take it as much of a valid excuse that you're having a bad day and therefore so uh, you know you're not responsible for your actions Mm. you might be having a bad day but you've still got to comply with the laws of the land now you can escape uh, the consequences of your actions in a court of law provided you can someone can demonstrate that you're a person who has lost mental capacity that is you're a person who is of unsound mind now now, all as I'm saying is that those same criteria can be uh, placed on people who want to end their lives. I, I don't think it should be made unreasonably hard uh, simply to say that you're having a bad day clearly isn't good enough. Uh, but if you're a person who wouldn't be considered in law to be of sound mind, well, then I wouldn't be thinking you should be having help to die. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Where is it currently? Because uh, Switzerland has become synonymous with with suicide now. It used to be sort of cuckoo clocks and stuff, and now people say, you know, I might as a joke, they might say, oh, well, I'll just go off to Switzerland when I, you know. And is is it just Switzerland, or you seem to suggest it's in quite a few places where where uh, assisted suicide is legal now? Yeah, Switzerland is unique, and I think uh, an example of what's possible. I mean, they really are a shining light because they're the one place in the world that hasn't gone down this path of establishing what I've just described as medicalised laws. What the Swiss did a long time ago, in fact, it was 1939, uh, that's a long time ago, they actually passed legislation saying that assisting a suicide is not a crime provided that assistance is not being provided for malicious purpose. But assisting a suicide is a serious crime in most places around the world, and it was in Australia up until we had this brief bit of legislation I used where there was this rare example where you could help someone die and not be classed as assisting a suicide. The penalties for assisting a suicide are universally harsh. 
in uh, Australia at the time, where I was, the Northern Territory of Australia, the penalty for assisting a suicide was life imprisonment. That's the maximum penalty the state can issue. We don't have capital punishment there. So life imprisonment for assisting a suicide, which if you look at it is a complete paradox in the law because suicide is not a crime. And assisting someone to carry out a non-criminal act should never be a crime, but it is in this rare instance. And that's the case in all places around the world, except those who have attempted to solve this issue. Switzerland did it in the way I've suggested. But since then, starting with the Northern Territory and now, and then straight after the Northern Territory, there was the state of Oregon the next year. Oh. Uh, and that's still got laws in place. And there was other states of America, Washington and Cal California, Canada, in Holland came in in 2001, Belgium, Luxembourg. Um, the debate goes on and, and we're having now back in Australia, the first states now have had reintroduction of laws. So at 20 years, we went back into the dark ages with the overturning of that first law. But they're just coming back now in Australia and New Zealand. But all of those places except Switzerland are bringing in what I've just described as medicalized models. You come along with your sickness, you present yourself to some adjudicating body, and you say, this is how sick I am. This is how much suffering I'm going through. They look at you and decide, yes, you, you tick all the boxes. You're suffering enough. Usually it's a criteria like you're terminally ill and you've got less than six months to live. That's all mm. part of the assessment. They will decide if you're of sound mind, usually with a psychiatric review. Uh, and if all of those things are met, then you can get help to die. In Switzerland, that's uniquely different because you don't have to be sick in Switzerland because the way their law is structured, if I help you to die in Switzerland, whether you're sick or not, and I'm not doing it to get rich or to otherwise uh, for some other nefarious purpose, I aren't breaking, I'm not uh, breaching Swiss law. And on top of that, there's this other provision the Swiss have done, which is they've allowed foreigners to come in and benefit from their, their law, something which doesn't happen here in the Netherlands, for example. So so the Swiss are unique and uh, and uh, I would say a shining example for the rest of us. What is it that I suppose I want to ask whether you you've obviously been long been linked with assisted suicide. They call you Dr. Death. Um, you were the first person to do what was it, a, a volunt legal voluntary lethal injection. Was there always a fascination from a young age, uh, teenage years or something? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I did medicine later, as I just mentioned. I, I went back to do medicine. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any particular interest in death and dying. I mean, my, and the work I was doing, I had only just recently graduated when this all happened. I was basically involved with people who were using, mm. it was in drug use, really, that I was involved. Uh, but I heard about it on the radio. This is in the Northern Territory. I said, one of the, one of the sparsest, most uh, underpopulated places in Australia. And yeah. I just woke up one day and heard on the radio that the government of the day was thinking of introducing this law to help, uh, which would allow a doctor to give a legal lethal voluntary injection. I thought, good idea, and rolled over and went back to sleep. Now, um, then I watched with some uh, amazement the furor that started in the next week or two when huge amount of a huge amount of debate started up with opposition coming from all groups. So certainly, as I mentioned, the church, my newfound profession, the medical profession, came out through their official organisation, the Australian Medical Association, said there is no doctor in Australia which will have anything to do with such a law. And I thought that's not quite true because I think it's a good idea. Um, and so my involvement became really during that period which led up to a vote in the parliament uh, as a political activist. I said, well, that's rubbish. There are doctors who support it. I'll have to admit I rapidly found out there weren't many, but I did manage to drag 
25 doctors rather screaming towards putting their names on a full page ad in the <laughs> local press. The, the Australian Medical Association responded saying, oh, well, yes, you've got 25 doctors, but there are 400 doctors here in the, in the Northern Territory. So not many. I said, yeah, not many, but enough. So don't, don't run this line that there is no doctor. The population thought it was a great idea. Everyone thought it was a good idea. But then they said, oh, well, all these doctors seem to think it's a bad idea. Maybe they know something we don't know. And it started to, started to un, cause unrest and uh, opposition was building. Was this French lady, was she the first person you helped to die or who was the first person? No, the first person who tried to use it was a total failure. He, he of all things, drove all the way to Darwin from across Australia's 3,000 kilometre trip when he was dying of stomach cancer to be there so he could get help to die. And uh, I visited him in his home in the southern states before, and I said, yep, when this law comes into effect on the 1st of July, you're the ideal person for it, because he, he was a person who was going through hell for his stomach cancer, terminally ill. Mm. He wanted to come up and die, and I said, yeah, good idea. And he said, I want to drive, and I thought, hell, this is a big, that's a long way to drive. But he said he was a taxi driver in a city of Broken Hill. And I said, well... I thought mm, maybe he'll die on the trip, but he said, "Well, what's it matter?" And I thought, "Yeah, fair enough. I really want to do this." He said. So he drove to he drove to Darwin. He got into Darwin to be there on the day the law came into effect on the first of July, nineteen ninety six. I put him in the hospital in Darwin, and then I had to try and find the other four, other three doctors because you needed four signatures, four doctor signatures, huh. and I couldn't and I couldn't find any. I couldn't find any other doctor who would come along. And I kept saying to the doctors, look, you don't have to endorse what he's doing. You've just got to say that he's a person, A, of sound mind, that he's got cancer, that he's dying. You've got to make a number of statements about him, not a statement to say you endorse what he's planning. That's not required, just to kind of assess his medical state. But I couldn't do it. No one would see him. He got more and more annoyed, understandably. He, he got upset with me and said, you didn't do your homework, boy. And I remember him saying it to me. And I thought, yeah, I began to think I hadn't done my homework either. I was totally mm. surprised. But you thought that part would be easier. Well, I thought I'd find, at least find a doctor to say he was dying of cancer. I mean, you could see that at 20 metres. And why wouldn't they do that? Is that is that cowardice on the doctor's part? Yeah, they all had. Meanwhile, the church, the church was spreading uh, and getting some currency to the idea that this law was going to be challenged, could well be overturned by the federal government of Australia. And then they spread this rather, I thought, pathetic rumour that if they did have it overturned, there could be some retrospective uh, legal penalties visited on the doctors who had engaged or used this law. I thought that was complete rubbish. And it clearly was complete rubbish, but nevertheless, it scared mm. the hell out of a lot of doctors. And they, whether they believed it or whether they just used it as an excuse, but no one would come along. And I was there on the phone begging and I couldn't get them. So what did he do? Did he just, he drove back, the fella? Yeah, well, yeah. I, he, we put, he, he put his house on the market in Broken Hill, stripped it all, sold all his furniture. Uh, he still had his cab, which was parked in, uh, in Darwin, to be signed himself out of hospital, climbed back in the cab and set off on the trip back. And uh, he got, he was, he was a very sick man by that stage. I mean, he got to a place called Cooper Pedy, which is in the middle of the desert, uh, to refuel. He got out of his car, fell over and couldn't get off the ground because he was so sick and someone picked him up and put him back in. And he got himself, got his car fueled up, the cab made it all the way back. All the way back to uh, to Broken Hill, and I flew down there, and we bought him a bed, and we bought him a knife and a fork and a cup and a plate, and camped in his own stripped house for about two weeks, and then he got carted into the hospital and died in all the ways he didn't want to. 
um, and that was uh, that was a, a miserable failure. But mm. in one way, it changed the face of it because the his his trip to Darwin had been documented quite well by one of the um, premier documentary uh, current affairs shows in Australia, uh, and that went to air, uh, and it was called Road to Nowhere, and uh, which summed it up pretty well. And mm. uh, one of the surgeons that I had begged to come and sign his sign his papers, and I knew the surgeon quite well, and I was a bit surprised he hadn't helped his senior surgeon. And uh, he rang me up the next day after it had gone to air on national television. He said, I've just seen your patient. And I said, yeah, he's the one that uh, you one you didn't want to go and talk to. And he said, yes. He said, I've just seen him and I feel like shit. He said, if it happens again, you ring me up and I'll, I'll, I'll see the pay. I'll sign the papers. I get a feeling that you're quite emotional talking about this man. Is that right? Yeah, Max Bell. Yeah, it was a hard one, that one. Yeah, I mean, I... It, it, I still feel guilty about it. As he said, you didn't do your homework, boy. I mean, hell, I mean, I'd, in some ways I had told him, not a problem, not a problem. This law was made for people like you. This is any small house in Broken Hill. As I said, I, he rang me up and I said, I'll oh, come have a talk to you. So I flew down to Broken Hill. I went and visited him. He's got his cab parked out in, the, in his car park. He'd been the taxi driver in the city of Broken Hill and has about three taxis, but he'd been the taxi driver there for the last 20 years or so. And... Uh, he said, as, the, as you can see, you'd see him at 20 metres that he was dying. He didn't need many tests to say that. And he said, uh, and he was clear as hell in his mind. And he said, I want to die. And, and this is a great, this is a good law. And I said, yep, it's just a law that's made for people like you. Well, it's not your fault. I mean, you, you did everything you could, I said, you know. Yeah, well, I was, and I was a bit surprised when he said he wanted to drive. But anyway, apart from that, yeah, no, I, and, I, and I felt, um, and also... It came in a period because the, the the battle to get that law through was intense. It was a dirty political fight going down there, and I was basically being disowned by just about every everyone else in the in my newfound profession who uh, weren't, mm. weren't being very charitable towards me. And the vote finally got through, and we passed by one vote, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was a very tense time. Uh, and now, when it finally did pass, the politicians. Who are especially the ones who were trying to push this law through are the ones I'd got to know well, more or less said, okay, well, here's your law. Now it's up to you to make it work. And it's quite true. They all walked away and left me with this piece of law and had a lot of problems with it. And I started to realize what they were. And I and uh, that comment about not doing your homework was in part, I suppose, referring to the fact that I had seriously underestimated the difficulties of trying to get a person through the prerequisite, these uh, mm. criteria for eligibility. And yeah. I couldn't get him through. I got rung up straight after the uh, the Max Bell failure by the head of the College uh, of Physicians in the Northern Territory he said, you've got your law, but it's never going to work. And he was sort of gloating on the phone. He said, <laughs> didn't work. And But what he was saying is that the medical profession have, uh, we've got this, uh, you've lost. And so I, I must say it was, and I thought he was correct, actually. And so I was a bit, I suppose, pleased when it was only three months later when the, the next person came along who became the first person to get a legal lethal injection, a chap called Bob Dent, who was dying of prostate cancer from Darwin. And I took him to the surgeon and he signed his papers. Then I had a hell of a job trying to find a psychiatrist and that spent, spent the whole 
ran around all states of Australia trying to find a psychiatrist who would fly in and tell him to say mm. that he was of sound mind. Eventually got that done. And then finally, Bob Dent on, in September of that same year, 1996, pressed a button on the machine I'd built and it delivered a lethal injection. Uh, and he died in his wife's arms. Oh, wow. But was it but Bob, what was his last name? Dent, D-E-N-T. Okay. Yeah. I, wow. I mean, I, I was gonna. I want to ask you about that that machine in a second, but I was just gonna say first because we were talking about the strain on you. You've taken on a lot of strain and pressure. Not only that, but you're working constantly around people who want to die. Um, I mean, how mm. does that have an effect on your mental health? Do you ever take a minute to sort of let let it sink in? Well, I mean, it's some a lot of the people. I mean, I've seen a lot, I suppose, over the years, and uh, people have got all sorts of reasons for wanting to die. Some of them seem pretty compelling to me. I mean, I, when I look at what they say, I can sort of put myself in their shoes and think, yeah, I'm not surprised you want to die. I would probably want to die if I was in that position too. And I've seen a lot of people with reasons for wanting to die who I possibly wouldn't necessarily agree with, such as Lisette. Now, you asked a question earlier about Lisette. It was only after those next four people used that law and the laws then overturned that I started to run meetings around Australia where I first ran into Lisette. And she was the, the French one who woman. challenged me. Yeah, she was the one who challenged me saying that what you're doing now is trying to use that same medical template to decide whether suffering is significant enough to warrant your involvement. And, uh, and that was what was the challenge to me because she said, my reason is as valid as everybody else's reason. It's just not one that you you would probably agree with. And I think that's true. I don't think I'd want to die because I was coming up to my 80th birthday. But mm. what she did say to me was, and what I fully agree with now, is it's not up to me. So people come along to me if they're sometimes the, the strangest ideas about why they want to die. Mm. Um, and, yes, they're not ones that I would likely to agree with. But I take pretty seriously this view that it's not up to me to judge their informed decision now okay these are people i would say who have got the ability to make rational decisions they make a rational decision that in their estimation being 80 years old is a good reason for dying and i'm going to accept that and i'll accept any reason basically if it's made by an informed rational adult i'm just trying to get to the emotion involved with you and i suppose also you're a doctor so you are i mean doctors do tend to be I first I heard about you through Jenny Kleeman, who I think you've done some interviews with. I read her book, and you're mentioned in that uh, Sex Robots and Vegan ah, Meat. Jenny. Yes, I do know her, Jenny. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, she so, came, she came. She wasn't terribly enamoured of the Sarko, but uh, <laughs> that, uh, nevertheless, I think I, I think Jenny will have to change her position on that because Sarko is about to be used, and uh, this idea that this is some sort of uh, yeah. Uh, sort of, sort of. Uh, I don't know how she put it in rather, dis- rather unflattering terms, but I, I think that the Sarko will change mm. the face of the issue. And it's a. Did you read what she wrote? Oh yeah, I, th- I read, I read, uh, I read her account of what she had written. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good book. I know, I, I, I know. I was quite taken with some of the. I mean, some. Of, I was interested in the extra utero uh, conceptions yeah. and the and the sex dolls and the. Uh, I mean, I thought yeah. it was interesting, interesting ideas because the idea of how technology is technology is changing just about every aspect of every way we live is something I'm fascinated by. It certainly yeah. includes death. And uh, what we've, what I've tried to do in many ways is to say, well, having got a certain philosophy, which you may or may not agree with, but having got a certain philosophy, how can technology now be used to best make such a uh, 
such a yeah. uh, philosophy implementable. And that's yeah. where Sarko comes in because of the we mm. try to use artificial intelligence to get around this vexed question of the one that you've alluded, yeah. the question about whether a person is of sound mind. All of those issues come up with Sarko. Hang on, we're skipping ahead, though, with Sarko. We're skipping ahead. So oh, okay. We're not at Sorry. Sarko. Yeah. We'll, st- we'll, st- we'll slip back in. Okay. Yeah, Sarko in a, in a bit. But the, the, the reason I bring up Jenny Kleeman is because throughout that book, she brings up something called an ick factor which is just things things that you have to get around, I suppose, if you're making technology. In in her case, she talks about birth as well. You know, there's an ick factor involved in, involved in the idea of just a baby being grown in a, in a tube. Um, yeah. There's also, of course, an ick factor involved in every part of of suicide. And so I just want to know personally with you, are you, you don't have that ick factor when you're building a suicide oh. machine or, or, or does it affect you? It's an interesting idea of an ick factor because, I mean, I use the term the so-called yuck factor, <laughs> which comes up a bit with uh, the driving force. Be- I don't want to skip ahead again, but, I mean, it's, it's the driving Sarko. force beyond Sarko because yeah. people use very effectively plastic bags to die. And there's an in- incredible reaction to that by many people who say, I don't want to die that way. And I'm, I don't want to die of a plastic bag over my head. And I'm there giving them a great lecture about the physiology of death and dying, saying this is a peaceful, reliable, wonderful, quick, everything about it, easy, it's legal, go on and on and on, fast, undetectable, waffle, waffle, waffle. But a bag over your head, you're, you're gasping for breath, aren't you? No, you're not. No, you're not. No, 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 no. We're just, you're not gasping for breath. Watch it. The bag is... Well, there you go, because I don't know. The bag is filled up... Uh, uh, we can go into it in detail if you like. But anyway, the point is that it, it is a very easy, comfortable, fast, slightly euphoric, almost intoxicating death, uh, and it works a treat. However, you have a plastic bag over your head. Now, people have said to me a lot, I do not want to be found like that. I don't like the idea of it, and I've referred to that. And you write about it as the so-called yuck factor of the plastic bag. And no matter how much you explain the science of the death, that doesn't change what is effectively an aesthetic revulsion or reaction to the idea of a plastic bag. And I can't do much about it, but I say, well, okay, now what can we do about it? And that, skipping ahead again, is why we developed Sarko, which was still beautiful and elegant as a way of getting rid of the yuck factor that may be the same factor that Clemens referring to as ick. So between the, the plastic bag, that was how you started doing things. And then there was a machine. Or was it the same thing where there's a machine? And this sort of haunted my nightmares a bit, reading about a machine. And, it, and it, I don't know why, actually, but it just says, you know, are you absolutely sure that you, you understand that you're going to yes, die if you push one. this button? And then you push yes, yes. And then it's just the word exit. It's the last thing you see before you go. Well, well you push it. Well, OK. Look, it gives you three questions. And they are basically restatements of the same question. Do you know if you press this button, you'll die? Are you sure you want to go ahead, press this button? If you press this button, you'll die in 15 seconds. So three statements come up on the laptop. Now, what that was done for, because as was pointed out by many people, I could have simply with this new law gone around to Bob Dent's house, put the needle into a vein and pressed down on the plunger and have him die on the end of the needle. I could have done that legally. And it was the first time in the world that that could have been legally done to a That would have been the first ever legal lethal voluntary injection. But I didn't want to do that. Not that I didn't believe in absolutely that he used his right to have that. But I didn't like the idea of effectively being the executioner when he could do it himself. I didn't see why I should have to do that. He could do it himself. So what I said, okay, I'll build a machine. He can press the button. The machine will deliver the injection. 
I'm not trying to say I'm not involved. Yes, of course I am. I load the machine. I put the drugs in the machine. I put the needle in his vein. I give him the machine. So I'm certainly involved. But the actual initiation of the process is not me. It's him. And what it also did, I thought, was by having these three questions, which he had to interact with in the right space of time and press the right button or the whole program closed down, was to show any of the sceptics out there, of which there were no shortage, that this was not some evil doctor uh, visiting their malicious intent on a moribund patient. This was a person who knew exactly what they were doing, reacting appropriately with a series of statements on the screen. The opponent said, oh, my God, now we've got, first we're talking about assisting a person to die, now we've got computers killing us. I mean, it went on like that. There was a lot of that stuff. But nevertheless, the idea was, and perhaps the biggest thing about the whole thing about the machine was that it got me out of that personal space. I wasn't sitting there alongside him, pushing the plunger. I was on the other side of the room. I had to be present according to our law, but I didn't have to press the plunger. And that's how the machine found its niche. Take me into that scene then. You're, I'm, I'm interested. So there's a room. Is it is a hospital room? or And you're sitting... No, it, it, no, okay. as part of this new law, you weren't allowed to die in a hospital. They were so worried about that. You had to die somewhere else, which meant that in one of two other cases where people were extremely sick, we had to try and hire motel rooms and get them out of the hospital so they could die somewhere else. Just one of these bizarre okay. anomalies of this new law. But anyway, Bob Dent lived in his own home in Darwin, and he was going through hell with his disease. had really taken him to a very close to terminal stage, hmm. but he was perfectly lucid. When we finally managed to get the four signatures, which is what we needed, four doctor signatures, I was one, we had another three on a piece of paper. He said, look, I'm going to die on Sunday. Uh, come around for lunch. Uh, and I said, okay. And that was uh, a bit of a challenge. Uh, I had built the machine. It was, uh, wasn't the finest piece of technology, I thought. There was problems with it. So I'm there testing and retesting and testing, hoping to hell it's all going to be all right. Uh, coming around for lunch. He said, I'll die at two o'clock. Hmm. So you get around there at lunch and uh, I had, uh, I, it, was a very, it was a very difficult time. I couldn't eat anything, didn't feel like anything, extremely dry mouth, didn't yeah. know what to talk about. Everything you're about to say to someone who's about to die and in a person who's like, a, not well, but very conscious, lucid person who you know is going to be dead in two hours and everything you say you run past in your own mind to see whether it's got some future component in which case you self-edit so i was self-edited to the point where i was almost mute i didn't know what to say i've been thinking about it. i better not say that that's the future component because because you're aware this is one of the last thing he's going to hear yeah so you try to you try to limit it to things which which don't talk about a future it's a very funny conversation because his wife judy was there she said dishing out food i'm there not being able to eat my ham sandwich. Uh, I found my mouth was so dry I could hardly speak. I looked down on and I noticed it was, it was September in Darwin. Darwin's the tropics, but it wasn't that hot. But my shirt was soaked in sweat, absolutely soaked, and I was embarrassed by it. Mm. And I mm. realised, I thought, what the hell is going on here? This, is, this can't work. That has not, I'm not that hot. But that was, a, that was obviously anxiety uh, that I was going through. And uh, what I end up doing, we end up talking about the football that's on television because there was going to be a decision on the football by in the period of time he had left as we ate what we or tried to eat our, our, our meal. And uh, at two o'clock, he just got up and said, let's do it. Oh, my God. 
paraphrasing so, Gary Gilmore, he got he got up and said, "Let's do it," and moved into the next room and lay down on the sofa. And uh, <sighs> I came in, and then of course the next next challenge was to make sure I, to get a, a needle into a vein, which can be an issue. Uh, and I I thought, and the other thing that was a big problem was I was by myself. You, know, you don't have anyone to help you, mm-hmm, so you mm-hmm. can't just say, "Oh shit, I forgot something." Let's yeah. do it tomorrow. Is his wife there in the room? Yeah, but I didn't have any assistance for myself. Like I was. No, I'm just myself. wondering though. Yeah, I'm just trying to get. I'm picturing the room. I suppose so. She must be emotional. Yeah, three. There's three of us there. Oh, very. And I've had trouble. Like, well, everyone has trouble occasionally getting needles into veins. And so I thought, yeah, well, <laughs> see how this goes. Anyway, it went straight in. I thought, oh, that's a sign. I felt amazing. I felt very pleased about that because hmm. that was that was not be something I wanted. I got the needle in. Got it all taped down. Got the drugs loaded. Got the machine loaded. Loaded up the software, handed him the machine, and retired to the other side of the room. Judy sat with him and held him. Yeah, he had the machine there, and the program was just sitting there for the first question on the screen, saying, "If you press this button, you know, you, you, do you want to die?" So he goes, "Press." Oh. Second, second question comes up, press. The third question is up. If you press this button, you will die in fifteen seconds. That was the last statement. Oh my God! Without any hesitation, he presses the button. And he pushes the machine away, just pushes it out to his side, and he turns and holds his wife. And I'm on the other side of the room watching this, and the the things that are going through my mind at the time are this this machine. Now, the 15 seconds was a period of time when there was some some of the software glitches that we <laughs> we were having. Now, that 15 seconds meant that things had to happen. And I knew that sometimes they didn't always, but they mostly didn't have a problem. But at the end of the 15 seconds, the immense relief that I got when the, it had a sort of a ticking sound when it started. And at the yeah. end of 15 seconds, it started to tick. It went tick, tick, tick. And my amazing, immense feeling was one of amazing relief. I was so grateful that machine worked. Yeah. Uh, and so I just relaxed probably for the first time. The machine started, I could see the drug starting to flow along the line. You could see the bubble, first a little bubble, then the, then the line flowed. He was holding her. They were just talking together softly. And then he just died in her arms. And uh, they stayed like that for about half an hour. And then uh, she slowly laid, laid him back down on the sofa. Uh, hmm. And I came over and said, if I confirm death and... Uh, uh, removed the removed the machine and the needle and stuff and uh, packed up everything and uh, and it was over. But my immense it was a very dramatic, as you can understand, day. Mm. Uh, people said, "What was the greatest feeling?" Well, there were two. One, the immense relief that the machine worked. The second relief was I realised that life was never going to be the same again because I did know that this was the first time this had ever happened. So I wasn't unaware of the fact that things were going to change, and they did. Wow. I. I don't think I've ever heard such a dramatic story. We've had some dramatic stories on this show, but that I just really felt in there oh. with you in, in that moment. And I just can't. Oh, my God. What? So she's for half an hour there. What are you doing? You, because also, and I'm trying to think how to it's, say it. It's totally silent. I don't want to sound glib when I ask this, right? But but are you you can't just be like looking at your phone or reading the newspaper, can you? You've just got to be, no. what are you doing? Looking solemn? no. Yes, looking solemn. Now, you're right. I wasn't reading. I didn't have my phone switched on, and I and I certainly uh, wasn't reading the newspaper. So I mean, no, I just looked. Uh, just thinking, just thinking, and thinking about what's just yeah, happened. Yeah, thinking as a, just thinking, and uh, I don't, I don't remember anything other than just sitting there quietly looking at the two of them. 
And she sort of looked up at the end of what it must have been about half an hour. She sort of looked up and almost to ask me or to get an impression, indicating that is this all right? And I sort of nodded as she as she started laying back down. But that was that. I don't think any words were spoken. My word. Yeah. So so since this, we talked about um, this French woman, you know, have you uh, assisted the suicide of somebody who who had no physical illness, no nothing like that? Well, when you say assisting. Uh, I guess you could, well, you could kind of, well, it depends what the, the definition of assisting is a pretty nebulous one. Uh, of course, if I give drugs to someone, that's considered to be assisting, of course. Right. Uh, if I give an injection, I'm certainly assisting. Um, yeah. If I tell someone that you can get the drugs at this place, uh, is that assisting? Because Is it stuff that you could maybe, you, you maybe can't sort of say publicly exactly? Well, I mean, it, assisting is a crime, and so I don't usually go around like uh, making life miserable for myself. But yes, obviously, I've assisted a lot of people. And if you use this rather the broadest criteria, which my opponents are always saying, certainly if you go publishing a book which tells people where they can get the drugs and how to take them, you are assisting. Okay. Uh, uh, now, the law, however, is kind of interesting because the law certainly won't allow me to go around telling people uh, taking drugs around to their house and giving them the drugs and say, drink that and you'll die. I wouldn't last five minutes. However, interestingly enough, the publication of the book, which tells you how to get those drugs and take them and die, although it's been going through a series of challenges all over the place, remains as the guidebook and uh, sells extremely well all over the world uh, by people Mm. who want to know how to do it. So information is the currency, really. Uh, rather than the practical assistance. Now, in Switzerland, that's a different matter. In Switzerland, I can give you your sarco and I can say, climb into this and press the button yeah, and you'll die. If I did that in Amsterdam with the sarco, I wouldn't last in Amsterdam because they may have laws, but those laws mean that you have to follow the very strict protocols of Dutch legislation, which are, apart from being a Dutch registered doctor, which I'm not, you have to also satisfy all the prerequisites, which are that you have to be sick so uh, as, and suffering and have gone through the various assessment processes. But in Switzerland, that's not necessary. I, you know what surprised me as well, Reed, because I didn't know anything about any of this stuff, um, but was the idea of drinking something. At Dignitas in Switzerland, I believe, that they're drinking, is it, how do you pronounce it, Nem, Nembutel? Nembutel is, a, look, it's the it's a, it's a holy grail of end-of-life drugs, and it's been around since the 1950s. It was the sleeping tablet, uh, a barbiturate sleeping tablet of choice back in the 1950s. Uh, mm. and Death row. Made a bit of a, bit of a name. Yeah, but it made a bit of its name for its first as a prescription sleeping tablet, a barbiturate. And it was used by people who were trying to get a good night's sleep. Uh, and, of course, it had one side effect, that is death, if you took it in the wrong way. And, in fact, it was that particular side effect considered serious, death, that led to a huge amount of research to try and find a safe sleeping tablet. And that's when the development of Valium came in 1959, which became the replacement for the barbiturate sleeping tablets. After that, though, it's become now the uh, holy grail for the end of life, uh, do-it-yourself movement. It's a preferred drug for places where legislation is in place, Mm. except where they can't get it in California and in the uh, US where they've had to try and sort out alternatives and as you also just mentioned it also finds a role in and that's why they can't get it in america because it's used for executions over there 
But you can drink it. You can drink it as well as inject it. That's the other yeah. That's what surprised me, asking. just because because it's because I always imagined an injection and drinking somehow feels a lot more personal and and surprising. But but before I want well, to get on to now uh, the the okay. sarco because we haven't because we haven't okay. we haven't done the sarco and I know I mean you're you're rightly I, I imagine proud of it. I mean it looks it looks oh, totally yes. different right. to what people would would imagine it looks like. I mean it's so modern and futuristic and it, um and and it's three D printable. And you're going to have to explain, when yes. you explain what it is, you have to explain to me how 3D printing works, because I still don't even get that. Oh, what's good? <laughs> that was a very uh, good idea, I think, the idea of using 3D printing. The idea, though, the, the, the underlying reason for 3D printing was to facilitate distribution. Because, again, this issue about whereas it's considered a crime to give the means for a person to die, that is to kill themselves is a crime, to give a person information about the means to end their life is not a crime. So if I give you a sarco and you die, I'm assisting your suicide. That's a crime. Mm. But if I give you a program data, which you then put through a printer and then climb into the machine you've just printed, that's probably not a crime because this is this distinction between the legality of providing data versus providing the actual yeah physical item. So that's one of the good things about 3D printing. We can send the design all over the world um, electronically. The, uh, distribution becomes an issue. I'm not, I'm not going to be mar market. I can be manufacturing sarcos and, and packaging them up and sending them all over the world. What one will do is that one can get access to the program. Wow. And it just comes out in a printer. It's very futuristic and it's, it's biodegradable as well, right? So it, it, it serves as a coffin. Well, we, well, what's happened is that because it's turned out to be so uh, lots of, there's been lots of problems, not the least of which is uh, COVID-19, mm -hmm. the first one will not be bio biodegradable. In fact, it'll be used over and over and over in Switzerland. What's going to happen down there is that there's a lot of people who want to use it and be first. I guess they want to be first. Some people don't care if they're first or not, but they still want to use the Sarko. They will climb in and use it, but then the next person will come along and climb in and use it, and the next person will climb in. So the capsule itself, which could be buried as your coffin, with you using that as your coffin, but then would then have to be replaced, will be effectively a reusable capsule in which people will die. Yeah, oh, my God. And it's uh, so, yeah, you, you just get inside it. It's this space-age-looking thing. And well, the, the idea was to give you this, give you the sense that you were traveling, to give you a feeling that this is a vehicle that's going somewhere. Uh, and I guess, uh, I guess many people have that idea. I mean, I think that's, I quite like the idea that this is uh, something, certainly the counter to the plastic bag concept was that this had to be stylish and had to be elegant. And, and I like the idea of it giving you a pleasant uh, futuristic experience. You can wave goodbye to your friends and family. Hmm. Uh, they can all gather around outside. You get in the vehicle, the Sarko, and when you're in the vehicle, you press the button and you die. Now, obviously, the vehicle doesn't go anywhere, but the idea is it gives you that look as though you're about to travel somewhere. So that that all fits pretty neatly into this idea. It's portable, so you can take it down to some idyllic uh, setting overlooking Lake Geneva or somewhere. It's got to be in Switzerland, of course, uh, or somewhere where you want to be when you want to die. Uh, and uh, from what we can see, and we've spent, a, we've just had some quite sophisticated legal advice about all this. There's no reason why that won't be. Uh, there's no particular reason why it can't be used in Switzerland for that purpose. But as I indicated, I can't take it out of Switzerland because the laws in other lands 
aren't quite as uh, helpful and I would not be able to use it anywhere else. Now, if you printed it over in Germany, mm. where you are now, and you climb in and press the button, that would be perfectly legal. Oh, the other thing about Sarko is it doesn't use drugs. Uh, it doesn't use hard to get illegal drugs. Okay. Wow. I've got a difficult question about the nature of humanity here because we've talked about the sadness you felt at uh, you know uh, using your machine on Bob. Uh, is there is there also a competing faction in your mind that in in taking a life does it ever feel like a, a, a god feeling? Do you ever feel that sort of power feeling? Of, is is there something that you would you have to keep that at bay ever? Um. I don't think I was. I don't think I was sad about uh, Bob Dent's death. I mean, I, there was an overwhelming feeling that I was glad that he, he had been able to get the release that he had so dearly craved, and I was kind of pleased that I'd been able to make it possible. So, I don't think I would have been overjoyed by the fact that I was never going to talk to him again, and that would have to re result in some form of sadness. But over, overwhelmingly, the feeling was that I was pleased. I was. I thought I'd done something that was well worth doing. Now, in terms of the question about does this make you come out of there feeling like you've got some sort of omnipotence or God feeling, I think this would suggest no, uh, because you're what helping person in their lives. Um, well, I, I'm just I'm I'm talking about on a very on a very primal level. I'm talking about the kind of feeling that we all have about uh, that the kind of feeling that we often feel ashamed of and we try to keep down. Do do you have to suppress that at all, or is it is it never never raised? I don't think. I mean, I, I think I say I'm proud of it. I don't think I'd be running around saying, hey, look, I've just managed to help someone else die. How proud I am. Uh, but by mm. the same token, I'm not ashamed either. So I don't, uh, I haven't been trying to, I, I believe that this is a good thing to do. And I'm glad I'm doing it. And I'm, I'm glad that I, in some ways, I think I'm quite lucky to be involved in what I would see as one of the cutting edge social issues of the time and to be able to play an important part in the development of that cutting edge social issue. Now, that doesn't, I don't think, give me some sort of feelings of uh, uh, of power um, I, at all, really. I mean, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, see that. I know that I come out of the every every time I left those rooms, that is, I left after those deaths. There was an immense feeling when I walked out into the sunlight, and I remember saying, "My God, I am so glad to be alive." It, it, it you cannot be that close to a person's death without yeah. being left with that amazing feeling that you walk walk into the sunlight and you just feel lucky to be alive. Hmm. Speaking of which, you are now in your seventies. Yes. Do you think about maybe on darker days, or maybe not even darker days? Actually, do you think about your own future? Whether there might be an age where you think, you know, what it's time to step into the sarco? Well, yes. I mean, I, I don't think that it's going to be based on uh, chronological time, like Lisette. I think it probably be due to some other reason that I will find compelling. And as I said, we meet a lot of people that have got some pretty compelling reasons for wanting to die, which aren't associated with suffering and sickness. So I don't know. None of those issues has cropped up yet, but they could, and maybe it will be suffering and sickness. I just don't know. But I don't doubt there will be some point in time when you look at the scales and decide that the balance is changing and that death does become the preferred option. And I've seen too many people trapped, unable to move at that point. My mother was a good example. She sat there for what seemed to me to be an inordinate amount, a long, a long period of time in a nursing home, saying to me mostly, I wish I could die. And she didn't have the means and I didn't have the ability to give her the means. And I feel uh, somewhat, uh, I feel ashamed that I effectively failed her, I feel. Uh, 
Now, I'm not going to be in that position, so I'm lucky. When it gets to that point, I'm not going to be sitting in some home uh, wishing I was able to die. I will be able to carry out that act. I've got access to the best drugs, and so that's just one of my fortunate fringe benefits, I suppose. But also I'll have access to the sarco. And I quite like the sarco, so I think I might indeed cart it off down to some idyllic location. Guess, given that I built it, it doesn't have to be limited to uh, Switzerland, I guess. I can go and use it wherever I like because the person who built it will be the person who dies. Yeah. And so they won't be able to do much about that. And so I suppose I can take it to my idyllic location, which can be anywhere. And then when uh, at the right time, with the right people surrounding you, climb in and press the button. Uh, I'll have to do the little test first. It's going to have a little artificial intelligence test, which I have to do, which will prove that I'm a person of sound mind. That will allow the machine to work for 24 hours. And provided I can pass that test, that is, I haven't slipped too far down some dementia pathway, I'll be able to uh, be able to get the perfect death. Wow, wasn't that something? I was about as emotional as I've ever felt doing this show as he told me about the machine that Bob was using while he lay in his wife's arms. What a story and how bizarre and poignant and, well, weird that Philip was just sitting there watching. I found the whole thing fascinating and don't know where I stand on the issue. I suppose I don't have to know. Again, I would stress that anyone feeling suicidal, reach out to the Samaritans or any equivalent where you live. Times are hard for a lot of people, especially right now, but remember that things can look up. I certainly wouldn't encourage people feeling low to take their own lives. This was merely an investigation of a taboo topic. Just want to remind you all for the last time to use my promo code EDGE on babble.co.uk slash play to get six months free with your six-month subscription. Remember to get the 15-minute bonus interview in which I ask Philip about his thoughts on prisoners sentenced to life and plans for a cruise ship of death that'll take people into international waters to kill them en masse. Here's a snippet from the bonus interview. Should prisoners yes. sentenced to life yes. be able to opt out? Should they be given the choice to opt out? Absolutely. It's quite an interesting, interesting thing that you've raised. Uh, yeah, go yes, on. Yes, ab- absolutely. And it comes up a bit. I've had a contact just recently in the last, last few weeks with another person who's in prison forever. And the argument that is made is that I'm in prison forever. They're never going to let me free. So why can't or shouldn't I be able to have? And I would see that the imposition of such sentences, as in my mind, is effectively torture, uh, that I don't believe the state should have anything to do with torture. But uh, life without parole, LWOP, shouldn't be entertained by the state. But if it is, and it often is, increasingly in many countries, then I would see that the state should at least be forced to provide the option of an elective peaceful death for the people involved. Otherwise, what we're trying to do is set up a miserable environment and torture people forever. And that's revenge, which I don't think we should be paying part of. So uh, uh, it comes up occasionally. And as I said, we've got now, there's been about at least half a dozen people that that I communicate with uh, who are in this awful position. And I've got little to offer them because I I can Mm. see but I strongly believe that they should be have they should have this option. So you can get the rest of that bonus interview and all the previous bonus interviews by signing up on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold. You'll be able to listen on the Patreon app or insert it into most podcast apps once you've signed up. 
Thanks so much to this week's newest patrons. It's been a fantastic week, actually, and I now have 52 lovely patrons who are regularly enjoying the bonus episodes, getting in touch with me, and getting the normal episodes ads-free and almost a week before anyone else. Thanks to Richard McColl of the Columbia Calling podcast, on which I was a guest. Top guy, so check that out, especially now he's my new patron. Tadziwa Stevens, thank you too for signing up. And Chase Marks of the Bystanders podcast, another brilliant podcast about mental health by one of the loveliest guys around. I was on that one too. Uh, And thank you for your generous support, Chase. Uh, I'm on retainer now. Jen Lawson, thank you for signing up. And it was lovely chatting to you and your neighbour, Leanne Pro, who helped me with an idea for a show a couple weeks back where I spoke to Madeleine Black about her father's Holocaust story for the bonus podcast. And thank you, Stephen Sandoval, who has a publication called Melt Reviews for signing up. It brightens up my day each time I see someone signing up as it edges me that little bit closer to doing this professionally. If you don't want to sign up for bonus stuff but do want to help out, please follow me on Twitter or Instagram on andrewgold underscore ok. Subscribe to the YouTube page, youtube.com slash andrewgold1 and leave a review on Apple or CastBox. This week's reviews came from Her Royal Highness Lady Longboots in the UK who said, Freaking love this podcast. Andrew lets the guests talk. He not only speaks five languages, and then there's like a face with a hand over it and a sort of embarrassed one, he also finds some of the most interesting people I've ever listened to. Along with this, Andrew lets the guests speak. There's no overtaking the convo with the me, me, me style of podcasting that exists in even the most factual of pods. Andrew asks questions and offers POV to guide the convo, but ultimately it's the speaker we hear from. Really enjoy every episode, and my kitchen is always really clean afterwards, which is testament to the quality of it. Brackets, I hate cleaning. Lots of love, me, XX. Oh, that's a nice, what a nice, lovely review. Thank you. And I've heard that a lot. It's funny because I thought I do overtake the conversation and interrupt people a lot, but apparently other podcasters are doing it even more. But uh, thank you very much for the kind words, um, Her Royal Highness, Lady Longboots. Uh, also, Anna Banana. Uh, I don't know if that's her real name, but Anna Banana in Ireland, Ireland, she wrote, fascinating storyteller, hitting important topics, a fascinating story, sorry, so- <laughs> fascinating, I was going to stop doing that, fascinating storyteller, hitting important topics, really enjoying binge listening to Andrew's episodes, a fascinating glimpse into some very interesting stories. Thank you, Anna Banana. I hope that is your real name. Next week, I'm really excited about my episode with Jenny Kleeman, writer of Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat. Her book focuses on four aspects of the future, sex, food, birth and death, and looks at how those things will change in the future. It's a lot of fun, but also very informative. And she was an absolute hoot to talk to. So I can't wait to show you that one. See you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.